Welcome to the Winston Conviction Podcast. My name is Rick Langer, and I'm a professor at Biola University, but also the co-director of the Winston Conviction Project, and uh, also the co-host of the Winston Conviction Podcast with my good friend Tim Yulhoff. It is great to be back with you, Rick. We we do a, uh, a segment called News from the Front, where we have, over the years, just discovered absolutely amazing people doing amazing things that is surprising and incredibly encouraging that maybe the argument culture isn't this fortress <laughs> that we can't crack. And uh, we have some wonderful people that we want to introduce you to. So Rick, why don't you uh, give us just a quick recap of our guest? Yeah. One of our favorite persons to talk to about the report from friends is a guy named Dan Broyles. And Dan's been a, a care pastor at the Valencia Hills Community Church for uh, many years now. But before that, he was a social worker for the county of Los Angeles. And he spent a lot of time working with children who are abused and neglected. And uh, he has done some amazing things in the relationship between L.A. County and churches and fostering kind of a synergism between the uh, services provided uh, by, by the faith community and also the services provided by the, uh, the, the government. And it's been a delight for us. Tim and I just mm-hmm. got a big kick out of talking to him about some of the things that go on and some of the ways to make what has often been treated kind of like a DMZ, uh, a demilitarized zone, to turn it more into a cultivated field. And so Dan is like the ultimate guru of that, and we're thrilled to have him back uh, joining with us again today. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's just a joy to be with you guys. I was literally writing down things during our first segment with you, and the one that really just stands out to me is when you said that uh, Tim Milhoff's teachings have changed my life. <laughs> and Dan, thank you so much for uh, saying that. And I, I don't take that light. No, I'm kidding. I'm just here to support you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you no, Dan and I actually met at a uh, conference. And when he came up and uh, told me just a little bit about his story, I said, you've got to be on our podcast. But the phrase I wrote down, Dan, is before you correct a person, connect with them. Absolutely. I thought, but but here's what I would here's what I think the pushback would be on that, Dan is. But I have no contact with these people. We don't we don't have any chance of running into each other. I, I live in my conservative Christian bubble. They live in their liberal bubble. Where do we connect? I, I mean, I I don't see any opportunity for this connection to take root. What would you say to a person who says, I don't have any liberal friends. I don't trust liberal organizations. I would honestly say that that mindset is actually uh, is living in fear and that I have to be with people who agree with me for me to be okay. Mm. There's actually no room for faith in that. So I really see that sometimes people only want to be around people that agree with them and they become so sheltered to to that it actually like decreases their creative thinking in their relationships mm. yeah and i would say jesus all the time spent time with people he disagreed with and there are probably hundreds of things that he thought about that he had differences of opinion that he didn't always have to bring up so huh. we don't have to bring those up just because they come to our mind i remember there was a mom i spoke to once she she was having trouble with her 20 year old son but she loved to give a lot of unsolicited advice. <laughs> how, and things weren't working go? out. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't working out well. He, the, the son felt really, really judged all the time. And I said, I think for every, like, you probably need to give advice about 
for every 20 thoughts you have for him, you probably can only say one. And she felt so restrained. Like, I can't help them then. And so sometimes we find our value in how we can help versus our value in how we can just be. Hmm. And so that that's the same in any relationship. And part of it, I think, in my role as a, a pastor and as a community member, I want to continue to pursue people uh, in my community, whether they agree with me or not. I have a, a coworker of mine who says, why do you keep inviting yourself over to other people's lives? Hmm. Is... Hmm. So if I make a, a connection with, a, let's say, a, a school counselor briefly in a meeting, at a community meeting for whatever reason, I'll email them three days later and say, hey, can I do a Zoom call with you to collaborate about something? Hmm. And sure, we, and again, and then start from a place of where do we agree? Can we love on children? Um, is there anything we can do? I was just talking this morning with someone who their whole job was to do mediation and divorce court. Oh my goodness. That's what they do 40 hours a week. Oh gosh. And I said to, to her this morning, if you were to think of something a church could do to help couples going through that, what would it be? And she said, how about co-parenting through a divorce, a group? Oh, wow. I said, yeah, we could, we could figure that out. We've actually done that once before a co-parenting class. And she was, they could so benefit because it's so emotional, so chaotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just kind of stepping into places uh, and really stepping in places of the unknown. I think sometimes as, as a Christ follower, sometimes we can, I, I only want to step into conversations I feel comfortable with. Yeah. And I, I, I just, there's no room for faith. And I think often God works through the uncomfortable more than we want to realize. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking of a book uh, by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. And he's a sociologist, so he's trying to answer the question, how in the world did the Christian church grow as fast as it did? And you know what his conclusion was? That the church, instead of being in opposition to culture, sought to help culture minister to particularly women mm-hmm. and children. Mm-hmm. That they came along and said, hey, we all care, so let's care together and be a resource with each other. And that's exactly what you've been doing with uh, people in L.A. County is, is the thing that brings you together is we care about these kids. Mm-hmm. And that's Absolutely. our starting point. Um, and, and I think we've kind of maybe lost that as the churches. There's a lot of problems. Instead of us just addressing them by ourselves with our own resources, we're going to combine resources. But that means probably us going to them, right? Absolutely. I think in, in previous generations, it's felt like the church has said, come to us. Mm. And I think there's such high levels of skepticism now that if the church really wants to grow, it needs to think of how do I go to them? And that's one of the things we're, we're trying to do. We, our church recently, this past, about a year ago, started a program called Family Stress Support. And what we do is we offer um, connection to families who are really stressed out. And a lot of the families we get are from the government. Uh, we'll get families from Department of Children Services, from school districts, from even uh, secular nonprofits in which the family just needs more help. Uh, There's not necessarily uh, 
abuse going on, but there, there's just plenty of stressors. And the, they'll voluntarily ask the family, hey, do you want more support? And if the family says yes and agrees to it, we then as a church assign a case manager to the family. Mm. And the whole job of that case manager is to be a bridge builder between that family's needs and community resources. And we'll go to their house, we'll go to their apartment, and we'll hold their hand to get help. Because if you hand, a, let's say, a piece of paper with a bunch of phone numbers on it to a a single parent of three Give kids. <laughs> what do you think the chances are of that parent calling up the nonprofit responding, they fill out the paperwork and they get all the help they need. Wow. Yeah. It's very, it's very little. And so we will step into that gap and they'll hold their hand through that process and then be the bridge to get them the help they need. And sometimes it's just finding out where the food pantry is in their community to a place in their church to they need to find uh, a counseling for their teenager or whatever it is, and they'll be with them for months if needed. There's no cost to it, no strings attached. There's mm. no have to become members to our church. And so these social workers and school counselors are saying, you can do things we can't do because we you, we have all the restrictions and you don't. You can do creative things that will help this family. So can mm. you help them? And, and the people that, you, that you're talking about, the, you know, kind of, you, you called them caseworkers. These are volunteers yep. from your church who are, who are walking with people through this. Actually, two, two of them now are um, employees of the church. That's okay. all they do part-time. But they, yeah, is, <laughs> their yeah. connection is, is to the church. It isn't a governmental yeah. position. It's a, yeah. 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 And, and then some, some government officials, when they heard about this, were a little nervous. And they said, um, are you just going to be proselytizing people? You know, I got, I got that question and I said, well, actually, I think we're being really respectful of people. And they're like, they're like, oh, how's that? I said, all we do is we ask every family, would you, if we find a, a faith-based resource that could support your family, would you want to know more information? And if they say no, then we don't give them a church-based resource. Mm. And if they say yes, then of course we do. So it's out of respect that we ask them. And then every time I've said this to some of the county kind of administrators are like, oh, that sounds reasonable because then the, <laughs> the client gets to decide. And what happens is probably 90% of the families we deal with yes. say yes to that question. Yeah. They're like, if it can help me, great. Yeah. And so most people are saying yes because they're just desperate for any help. And then we're just sensitive how we go about it and want to just love on them, not be pushy about it, and just try to figure out how, the best ways to help them. Dan, let me ask this. So this whole thing started when L.A. County realized there was an untapped resource of faith-based organizations, churches, and that they wanted a connection now mm -hmm. between them and these religious communities. What do you, as you were that conduit, what was it that they thought you would be like? What did they think faith-based communities were going to be like as they were learning about them? Well, I think some of the initial concern was really for the lack of foster homes. And uh, I think even in the secular world, government officials, board of supervisors realized that that religious groups, churches can provide a place to give community that other places can't provide. Mm. I, I think it's obvious in today's world, if you ask any sociologist, how important is it for community, for families? The answer is really it's obvious as can be, but where do people go to find that? Yeah. And community needs to not be in person, not just only online. Online can be helpful. There could be online support groups that are helpful. Mm -hmm. But if that's your only support of help, 
that's that's a danger. And the other thing that they were finding with kids and families in foster care is their only relationships were formal relationships, not informal relationships. Yeah, so it was their teacher, yeah. it was their teacher, the therapist, their doctor. So those are all the formal relationships, which which are important. Those are important relationships. But if there's no healthy informal relationships of those friendships, what to do during holidays, uh, birthdays, you know, like we had a family through family stress support, the social worker reached out, asked us to help. And we found out it was the 10 year old boy's birthday the next day. Yeah. And the family was homeless, but found a relative to crash at a couch and it was his birthday. And so we're like, as a church, where, where do you want to go to for, yeah. for your birthday? And he goes, I just want an In-N-Out burger. Uh. I just want, so what do you think we did as a church? We can pull that off. And we didn't have a bunch of paperwork to fill out Yeah, to buy this In-N-Out for this, this 10 year old and his family. And that's the type of thing also that I think they're realizing is the faith community doesn't have all the red tape. Yeah. that a government worker has. And it strikes me that that's actually one of the beauties of this, because I think there there's reasons for red tape. There always are. And yeah. there's, there's things that the government can probably do uh, better in a more sustained fashion, a more, you know, accessible fashion for some people may not want to be a part connected to the faith community. And so the, the idea of saying, let's collaborate, let's work together, let's both do what we're best at doing uh, just makes an enormous amount of sense. I mean, as you describe it, I'm saying going, oh, yeah, obviously. You know, why, why would anyone see it differently? But it seems like people largely haven't even seen it as a possibility at all. Yeah, I, I have a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Michael Russo, who's one of the administrators. Uh, he said, I think what would take me two years, you could probably do in two weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Because... If he's going to do any changes or like design a new program, there's the hoops that, that are just relentless that he would have to jump. And I would probably, you know, talk to my senior pastor in a 10 minute conversation and go, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> you go for it, Dan. And, We're cheering for you. That sounds, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that fits what we want to do. Okay, let's, let's figure that out. Yeah. And we would go from there. So I, I just think the, the, the church can be a place to step in there. And I really think uh, the church, one of the untapped needs that churches haven't really stepped into fully is the whole foster care world. Yeah. Uh, what, a, what a place to live out the hands and feet of Jesus is, is, is the church. And so the needs are off the chart for LA County needing more quality foster homes, but people are pretty scared. Mm. And the LA County's had a brutal time trying to recruit foster families. And so this is an area I think that the administrators of LA County are like, if they can help us recruit more uh, quality families, that's a win for everybody. Dan, I teach self-defense at domestic violence shelters uh, run by OC United. And mm -hmm. I went to a donor event for OC United, and they also have a foster care program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The statistics my wife and I heard were jaw-dropping. Like you listen to him and you go, this cannot be accurate. Something like within the first year that a girl <clears throat> ages out, she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And within the first year, it was like 50% of the guys are in jail. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's unbelievable. It, it, it's like a, it's like they literally go from foster care to either often either homelessness or incarceration and I think the research that I read 
a little while ago that said um, 4% of those coming out of foster care will actually get a college degree. Oh, my God. 4%, 4% of emancipated foster youth will get a college, four-year a bachelor's degree. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned this really briefly as you were just talking about this with foster care, and you talked about the issue of fear. It it uh, struck a chord with me because uh, I think Tim earlier mentioned uh, Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, he talked about the, how the Christians cared for, for women, for children. Um, they cared for hungry people. The other thing that was interesting that, that uh, Stark unpacks in that book is how we cared for for those who were sick, including in particular those who were sick with the bubonic, pl- well, with whatever yeah. plague happening right there. Yeah. It may have been smallpox, it may have been uh, black plague, whatever it was, but they had these these waves of sickness. You think of the fear we had with COVID. It's I, I did this with my class recently where we talked about the COVID statistics, and then I put up the statistics for the smallpox vaccine that blew through the Greco-Roman world in about 160 A.D., and mm-hmm. it is breathtaking. And then I showed him a picture of a person who has a bad case of, of smallpox. And, it, you know, it was a very still moment in class where you were looking at this. So there was a huge fear factor, and the Greco-Roman world stepped back. Part of why we know this is Galen, the, the Roman physician that we often talk about. He saw the plague. He accurately identified it. He was a good doctor, and he fled to Asia Minor. <laughs> And it was the Christians who ended up nursing and caring for people mm. at a time when you couldn't really cure people. All you could do is care for them in the midst of their suffering. Right. Um, and that disproportionately allows people to survive, by the way. It's remarkably, even with a thing like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the Black Plague, you, you have people who are, you know, 30 to 60 percent higher survival rates just because you give them basic nursing care. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, clean up after them, give them food and water. Um, so anyhow, the interesting thing in 160 AD in Rome is that you see Christians stepping in where fear has have driven the non-Christians and the pagan, uh, you know, people of that day out. We stepped into a fear gap, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like we're kind of doing the opposite thing now where mm-hmm. we're worried about our families. We feel threatened by the things that are going on around us. And so we step away. I think the world steps away, too. I, I mean, I, I guess all we're doing is imitating the obvious of I feel afraid, so I step away. But I think this might be one of those good moments to call to mind kind of our own heritage that way, of being the people who step in in the midst of, of fearful places. Yeah, absolutely. I There's some classes I teach at our church called spiritual care classes. And one of the themes that comes out of it is uh, how do we step closer into people's pain, even if we can't solve it? Mm. Hmm. Uh, how do we step into someone who's still really grieving? Or how do we step into someone who there's no answer to the problem and step towards them, not away from them? I think uh, there's this idea out there that only the professionals can really help out if this really is some serious emotional problems, uh, therapists, pastors, or whatever. And obviously the roles are really important, but how do I step towards them so they're less alone? And there's high anxiety for the average person um, stepping in with someone who's really depressed and you can't make it better, just offer yeah. your presence. And I think the more that Christians do that, the more uh, I would say they're attractive are to the rest of the world. Yeah. Like to step into people's presence and not make it better for your own anxiety's sake, but just <laughs> to be. 
Yeah. One of the things that we've we've talked around this a little bit, but I'd like to just ask you about this point blank is how does all of this relate to let me just call it kind of traditional concerns for evangelism and outreach as a church. In other words, we want to care for others in all their, you know, the realities of their physical needs and also their, their relational needs and all things that go on in family life. But we usually are pretty committed to saying, but we can't just and only do that. We also have to sure. care for the spiritual. We have to also speak. There's a part of the gospel that's preached, Absolutely. not just performed. Absolutely. So talk to us about agree. that. How's that worked for you? Yeah, well, I, I I was just talking to uh, a young adult yesterday who is a Christian, and I said, "So, with your peers, if you're if one of your friends is really anxious about whatever in life, they're just you know stressed stressed out. What do you think is more likely them to come to our church to get we we have a thing called spiritual care, like a, a counseling kind of thing, to meet with somebody one to one, or show up to a church service?" And she looked at me like, that's really obvious. <laughs> like, why are you even me? asking? Like, that's as obvious as obvious as can be. And uh, what's happened, I've noticed in our church, is people are coming to our, our care groups, support groups, our counseling ministries as the first step. And then they end up coming to our church service and yeah. uh, connecting with the spiritual things. And then part of it is teaching people how to ask, I would say, uh, good questions that opens the door that doesn't feel judgmental. So for instance, hmm. uh, one of my favorite questions to ask if I'm meeting with someone who's not from a church background or says they're not a Christian or whatever it is, as I'll say, can you give me like one or two positive and one or two negative uh, religious or spiritual um, experiences you've had in your life? I want to listen. Huh. It's amazing what comes out of that question. That is. And people, it's, and then from there, you get to meet them as they are. And often they've been hurt by a Christian or there's a misunderstanding about God. Like, well, if I had that experience, I, I would understand why you'd be afraid of church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I can actually have compassion for, uh, for you, which surprises them because they think I'm just trying to convince them. Yeah. And so trying to help people to ask questions like that um and what happens is i think in the past there was i believe and then i belong and now people want to belong and then they believe mm. wow. so i just think people are, are craving connection but i think people don't know where where to start and where to feel emotionally safe and so they're not going to even show up on our church campus if they don't feel emotionally safe but i agree with you it's, it's the whole person not just the physical emotional People need to hear about Christ because uh, that's what we're designed to do. And the other question I'd like to ask is uh, just wh where have you found you've gotten purpose that is sustainable? Mm. Hmm. That's good. You know, I'm thinking, Ma my goodness, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Before you get to mm -hmm. self-actualization, mm -hmm. you go through safety needs. Mm -hmm. and, Absolutely. Uh, have you ever heard of this show called 30 Days by Morgan Spurlock? He's the one who did Supersize Me documentary. Um, he, he does something for 30 days or he asks somebody to do something for 30 days. So him and his girlfriend tried to live on minimum wage for 30 days and you can't. 
So every mm-hmm. time they spent any money, they, they showed it up on the top of the screen how much money they had left. And pretty soon they have no money left. They have no furniture. They can't buy food, all this kind of stuff. So one day they stumble across the storefront. That it looks like a furniture sale. And so they just kind of walk in and they're looking because they just want to get a nightstand. That's all they want. And they really have mm-hmm. no money. And they're talking to this one guy saying, are you willing to negotiate the price? And the guy goes, oh, I'm sorry. I don't think you understand what this is all for free. Like everything in this entire storefront is free and we'll actually deliver it to wherever you want us to deliver it. We're a church that just feels like we need to help people get by. She starts crying. The girlfriend is Mm. overwhelmed. And it's a documentary. She's being filmed. And she knows she's being filmed. She loses it and says, I I have never experienced such kindness. And then it was so cool. They had that nightstand right there. And they had a dresser. And they had a couch. Uh, And, And I can't but imagine every time they sat in that couch, they thought about that church. So, Dan, I I think we're kind of wrapping this thing up where what you said, connect and then correct. Mm -hmm. And that was one big connection that Morgan Spurlock will probably never forget. And uh, thank you for being a great reminder that even in the midst of such division, there are points of connectedness. And maybe we need to take faith, put aside our fear. And it's not always going to work. Doors are going to be slammed takes two to dance and some just won't be a dance partner but let's take that step step of faith and thank you for giving us the courage to do that well thanks thanks for having me thanks just for uh your your passion to step into culture and make a difference you've been listening to the winsome conviction podcast and we'd encourage you to uh to join us regularly you can subscribe at apple podcasts or uh spotify or wherever it is that you get those and also uh take a look at the winsomeconviction.com website where we have just a lot of resources there a lot of other things that stimulate your thinking about as we were talking today how you might be able to establish connection before uh pursuing correction and so we're grateful to have you and uh, please uh, look forward to having you with us next time